Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. Well, a big bomb dropped on Monday night, and we talked about it most of Tuesday's show. A deal between the Liberal Party and the New Democrats federally to keep the Liberals in power. There won't be an election, not next year, not even in 2024. No election until 2025. And the NDP gets some stuff out of this, too. So we go into some of what exactly that is, what it means for the future of Justin Trudeau, the next Conservative Party of Canada leader, and you. More importantly, as importantly, no, more importantly. So that's a lot of Toronto Today. Today and the Tuesday edition starts now. If you went to bed early, you missed it. The Liberals and NDP have an agreement to keep power until 2025. Any sort of prediction. So let's erase the tapes where I was uh, predicting that a week ago because I didn't see this coming. I'm blindsided by it. But the funny thing is to uh, start talking in back channels last night. Uh, conservative MPs absolutely blindsided by it. They were thinking, we've got the spotlight. We've got the attention. All the lights are on us right now. People want to know who the leader is going to be. There's a new poll out today that I'll get to this segment as well about who's leading in Ontario. Big Angus Reid poll about conservative leadership, and I think it matters. Sometimes polls, you roll your eyes and you go, oh, 52% of people are uh, this and 48% of people are that. I'm like, yeah, that's how it goes. It's hard to find consensus. This one, this one's a little different. This one is a little different. But let me give you some of the details of this. Uh, and then we'll get to, obviously, we'll get to a couple uh, Pierre Polyev uh, cuts from his video that he made last night. And, uh, and I think it's really significant that he lays out a plan to stop this potentially by well, looking to see if the Liberal and NDP backbenchers, if it's something they don't want, if it's something that they're not interested in, if all that is true. Um, so one of those one of those weird things, one of those weird stories last night, one I didn't expect to see coming. So here's what's going to happen. A tentative deal that sees the NDP support the Liberal government. All those seats the NDP won in 2021, they had a pretty disappointing election result. They wanted more. Their popular vote went up, but they only went up by one seat from the 2019 election, 24 to 25. But those 25 votes make the difference. You got 119 conservative uh, MPs, 32 with the block. That's 151. The NDP, that, that puts them nine behind the liberals, 160. The NDP goes, or at least another a group of members go, and vote with the conservative and the bloc on an issue. By the way, Green Party has two seats. Obviously, PPC have uh, a big fat uh, goose egg zero. Um, but the NDP are the kingmaker here. They can bring a deal in hand. They can rip one apart. And there was a lot of talk about it during the Emergency Measures Act back in early February, whether indeed that would be the case. And now we know better. It's amazing now we can look in the rearview mirror and see the cars behind us because clearly the liberals and NDP were working on a deal. Now, nobody sees they've been working on this since late fall. Okay, that's really important to point out. And I'm sure the guests we have on the show this morning will point that out. But they were unbelievably tight, airtight about keeping it under wraps. The liberal party is not always that. You've seen people speak out. You saw three or four different MPs speak out. And say, I'm not really comfortable with how we're governing right now. I'm not. And, and I think it's gone to change how many of us have talked about COVID as a whole. Joel Lightbound, the Canadian MP uh, for Louis Hebert, first elected in 2015, spoke out and said, I'm not comfortable with how we're talking about people. 
I'm not that comfortable with, we've got to be positive. We can't be coercive. This is around the time, as you right remember, we're talking about taxing the va- the unvaccinated. We're talking about even strengthening the mandates. This wasn't just about truckers. This wasn't just about Ottawa. It was about a lot more than that. Nate Erskine-Smith, who we've had on the show, the MPP for MP, rather for Beaches East York, has said similar things. We've got to govern with a little more responsibility here. We've got to govern with a little more um, enlightened perspective. We have to listen. We can talk, but we have to listen as well. We all go through those things, right? Personally, professionally. Am I listening as much as I'm talking? you got to look in the mirror and ask yourself that. And governments are no different. And it's been a major criticism internally and obviously externally about the liberal government. So they're working on this deal as the Emergency Measures Act comes around. And so because we can't predict the truckers, four weeks of protests, Justin Trudeau's small fringe minority comment that absolutely inflames the situation. It didn't not do that. What, what you think it poured water on it or gasoline? You got to pick one. You know it didn't pour water on it. You know it didn't douse that fire. So they need NDP MPs to keep them in power until 2025. And this derails a lot of momentum, a lot of conversation, a lot of discussion about what the Conservative Party was going to build up to. Because you can imagine, big contest all summer for the leadership. Pick the leader in September. Get a lot of outdoor summer barbecues. We're all moving towards a better place, better mood. Let's talk about change and transition. And change is sometimes exciting. We know when it happens in politics. No matter what side of the political fence you're on, many times we see the train coming. Many times we understand it's time for somebody new. And we all vote for, obviously, we end up, well, I voted for this guy the last two elections. I'm going to vote for this guy instead. There ends up being a sea change in the demographics of who votes for who. Of course, there's people that vote for the same party their entire life. Of course, there are. But it isn't most people, which is why we change governments. And we really don't give many governments as long as now Justin Trudeau could potentially get up till 2025. I think the plan was get the convention going. Um, get people out there in the summer, talk about the mission, unite the party. That was a big one and step right into the spotlight and then try and force an election in spring of 2023. At latest, what you'd settle for, I often use the phrase you'd sign up for allowing it to happen in the fall of 2023. And now that's up in smoke. Now that's extinguished. Now that's out of, out of the realm of possibility, unless something very, very bizarre happens here. So the NDP would back the liberals in confidence votes. This is the part of the agreement I'm reading right now. All the budgets covered. The NDP is not going to challenge much in the budget. The liberals can make the budget. The NDP are going to vote for it no matter what, because the liberals are going to give the NDP some elements of their 21 election campaign. We interviewed Jugmeet Singh on Toronto today, right before the election. We interviewed him the Thursday before the Monday that the election was coming. And they wanted national pharma care. And they want dental care programs. And a lot of Canadians do. A lot of Canadians do. And the Liberals have just been silent on it. So the NDP gets their agenda. And I don't mean agenda in a negative way. You can view it that way if you like. But a lot of what they would have put in, were they the federal government, they're getting out of this. They're going to get NDP, not necessarily cabinet ministers, but they're going to get NDP MPs on big committees. So to summarize again, the Liberals and NDP leadership have a tentative deal to support the Trudeau government to 
25. It's rather remarkable. Pierre Polyev driving last night from Montreal to Ottawa. By the way, he apologized for the sound quality of this video, so I'll apologize for it also. It's not the best, but it's the best Pierre could do at the given time. He weighed in. He said this. We can mobilize the Canadian people to apply pressure on backbench liberals and NDPers who are not comfortable with this backroom deal in order that we may force a non-confidence vote and try to defeat the government and its coalition partner before the 2025 expiry of this deal. I'm the only leader who can launch that effort. That's what he thinks, and saying it enough times, it does make people believe it. Let me give you a poll before you hear more from Pierre Polyev. I promised that a few minutes ago. So there's a new poll that suggests right now Jean Charest has the advantage in Ontario over Pierre Polyev. The big question about Pierre, can he break through the red wall? Can he win GTA seats? Can he get that 401 corridor? Can he take seats in Kitchener? Can he take seats in London, in Guelph? Shout out to Guelph along the way. Can he do those things? And the Angus Reid poll uh, surveyed that Charest is the favorite. Now, people who voted liberal in the past might think that he was a liberal premier in the province of Quebec. But again, if you're going to split the party, if you're going to look and say, Polyev's got big appeal, big appeal in the base, you're going to get those seats in Alberta and Saskatchewan no matter what. You're going to get walloped in British Columbia no matter what. Can you pick up some in Quebec? More importantly, can you pick up big seats in Ontario? And can Pierre Polyev do that? Many conservatives have said, he's our guy. That's who I'm voting for. That seems to be what the poll says. This poll suggests Charest's the guy more likely to appeal to Ontarians. And that's going to ring in the ears a little bit of people who've gifted this leadership uh, and, and potentially being the next prime minister to Pierre Polyev. A majority of conservative voters polled told Angus Reid they'd back Charest as leader. Um, 80% said they'd consider voting for Polyev if he won the leadership. 66% said the same as Charest. But the Ontario numbers are what's striking in this particular poll. And by the way, for people who did vote People's Party of Canada last time out, Polyev's got more oomph and more appeal than Jean Charest does. That's a big factor right there. Polyev's going to dominate the prairies. Sheree absolutely will win on the prairies, but will he be as dominant? Polyev's got those Alberta, Saskatchewan, and most of Manitoba votes already in his pocket. Here's more from Pierre Polyev last night. Here's his message to the electorate in terms of what they need to do in, well, the next couple of weeks as this starts to get revealed and we learn more about this agreement between the Liberals and the, and the NDP forged last night. I am a proven fighter, and some things are worth fighting for. So keep the hope alive, and more than that, take action. Sign now the Pierre Polyev for Prime Minister form, which is in the link. Join the effort. I will be in contact with you about some more practical things you can do to help me fight against this coalition, to put you back in control of your life. Okay, that sounds good to me. That's 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 Dr. Phil stuff. That's who doesn't want to get control of their life again. I think most people do. Important to note, no NDP members would join cabinet. That was rumored a little bit last night. Uh, that got sussed out by some sources and said, is this out there? And by the way, that's something the conservatives, to be honest, a lot of leaks are coming now fast and furious. 
Um, I've watched this in the in the sports industry. I can see it now in politics. You can tell somebody is benefiting from news being out there. Somebody, be- everybody benefits. Someone benefits from a leak. You just always ask it. Ask have to ask yourself who it is. You have to find out who. And I would I would not doubt the conservatives don't mind having it out there that the NDP could potentially join cabinet posts. But apparently that's not true. That makes it look like it's almost an extreme overreach of allowing power to get to the NDP as opposed to the liberals. But they're going to be on parliamentary committees together. They're going to work on legislation together. Look, if you voted for the NDP last time out, I suppose you feel really good about this. If you voted for the liberals, I might say the same thing. It's obviously it's a bad moment for the conservatives, and we're going to see how they react in the next 24 to 48 hours. The other thing I'd say is this, and I did promise I would mention this uh, before we hit the six o'clock news with Dave Bradley. This is the end of the line for Justin Trudeau. This tells me universally he won't run again in a federal election. He won't do it. It's not because of age. It's not because of effectiveness, but he'll have put a decade in. He'll have won three elections. This deal, in essence, gives him majority rule. He'll have had two majority governments and a brief minority from 2019 going through our uh, COVID era, if you will, up until last fall. And they've been operating under the guise, really, of a minority government. But now we know. Now we know these liberal NDP conversations have been happening since late 2021. And it's. It shows it tells you everything about why the NDP didn't react too outrageously about the Emergency Measures Act. What could they do? They're getting what they want. They're working towards an agreement. They're climbing up that hill. And as a result, they were only going to say too much. They were only going to say so much about the Emergency Measures Act, whether they liked it or not. Our text line 289-975-1640, 289-975-1640. Should mention again, the CP Rail uh, stri- strike slash uh, lockout slash whatever it was, it's over. Binding arbitration got a deal done also late last night, and they will make the trains run again today. So a uh, idle scenario for those trains for about a day and a half for CP, and they're back at it, and they'll begin work today at 12 noon. They got terms and conditions done that the union liked, that the company liked, and they're back at it, and full credit. I think the Liberals get some credit here. Seamus O'Regan mediated the talks, put a statement out, and got involved right away. Didn't wait this out. He didn't wait a week. He didn't wait two weeks. It got done very, very quickly. So here's the story, and it is a deal, and it is, <laughs> it's rather remarkable. It's blindsided an awful lot of people. The Liberal government with an informal deal with the NDP, they'll stay in power. No elections, no federal elections of any kind until 2025. If you were thinking the conservatives were going to puff their chest out all summer, pick a leader, get right at it, try and force an election next spring or even fall of 2023, maybe at the latest, maybe at the latest, not going to happen. Not going to happen. And the NDP get a lot for this particular uh, deal. Let me play you something that I think is really prescient now. This was Jugmeet Singh about five weeks ago talking about the Emergency Measures Act. And I spotted something in the text, uh, in the context of what he's saying. We're going to get to Alex Boudelier in just a sec. But this was Jugmeet Singh being critical of the Emergency Measures Act, but also documenting where he could see its application not utilized. We also want to be very clear that uh, the application of the Emergencies Measures Act in this case should not at all be seen as a precedent. This is an unprecedented situation with a group that was targeting 
uh, with the goal of undermining democracy. That was their goal. And in that light, this should not apply to uh, community members that are raising their voice in legal protests, Indigenous community members fighting for their rights, uh, environmental activists, workers that are fighting for fair collective deals. This should not apply to Canadians that use their voice to legally and peacefully protest. So remember, Jagmeet Singh took a lot of heat. Why is the NDP supporting this? You're about liberties and speaking out. And now I think we have a better understanding of it. He meant, he said, we are supporting this with reluctance. They voted for it in that vote on the Monday night. We watched it live on television. So here's what will happen. But but they were working on a deal, the Liberals and NDP, the entire fall, entire back end of 2021, heading into Omicron with COVID. Justin Trudeau will speak this morning, 9 o'clock. Uh, we'll be all over that. Jagmeet Singh has a news conference shortly after Justin Trudeau. So this is happening. Very pleased to welcome in our next guest, senior national politics reporter for Global News. He is Alex Boudelier. Alex, it's great to have you on. Thanks for making time uh, for our show as always. Yeah, great to be with you. Blew my mind last night. Really did. I, I, I And there are some conservative uh, you know, MPs that are very blindsided by it. They're furious. They're calling it Pierre Polyev, calls it backdoor socialism. But does it explain a lot of last fall post-election and certainly the reaction? The Liberals and NDP are spending months getting this set to be announced today. Yeah, no, it's interesting to trace it back that far. I mean, I think, you know, observing it at the moment, it, it really just felt like, okay, the NDP are in a position where they can't force an election. They don't have the money. They don't have the prospects to increase their seat count. Um, so that's why they're supporting it. But as, as you note, um, you know, Jagmeet Singh talking about supporting the government with reluctance sort of is cast in a new light uh, in, mm -hmm. in the wake of these revelations reported by uh, multiple media outlets now that uh, some kind of uh, confidence and supply deal has been re reached. Now, this is not, as some conservative MPs have been saying, a coalition government. Um, you know, there's no NDP representation in the cabinet. You know, Jagmeet Singh is not going to become health minister after this or something like that. Um, you know, this is basically, you know, an agreement to support the government on confidence mat matters that if the government were to fall, uh, would provoke an election. Um, at least that's the, the information that we have at the moment. We're going to have to wait to see, um, you know, the, the, the fine print. I'm especially interested in the fine print around what the liberals have promised the NDP. So early reports um, from some of our colleagues have been, um, you know, promises on pharmacare, promises on denticare. Uh, two things that are, you know, sort of near and dear to Jagmeet Singh's heart. But, you know, if this is an agreement to, you know, simply study those things uh, again or, you know, you know, promise to really think about implementing them, I think uh, Mr. Singh is going to get a lot of criticism from his own party about this deal. Yeah, I wonder. And, and there almost was an appeal um, in Pierre Polyev's video last night. He suggested uh, public uh, members of the public putting pressure on backbench liberal MPs and NDP MPs who may not be comfortable with the arrangement. I, I don't know if he's going to find any in the NDP. And though the liberals not exactly a tight ship during the, you know, the the crisis in Ottawa with with numerous MPs speaking out, um, Joel Lightbound among them, uh, Nate Erskine Smith was another. I, I, I think the liberals see this for what it is, and it just extends their run here. And nobody wants to go and, and knock on doors again in 18 months for another election. They don't. Well, yeah, no, I think that's true. But I'm going to I'm going to throw a bit of a curveball here. I think the conservatives should be jumping for joy over this, because what this guarantees the conservatives is the next leader is going to have multiple years 
to build up their their uh, awareness with the public, to build up their election machine, to retool what they have to retool inside the party. And they don't have to worry about the Liberals waiting for an advantageous moment to call a snap election. This is this is great news, I think, for the next Conservative leader, um, and I think increases the odds both that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau probably won't be leading the Liberals yeah. in the next election, right? Because yeah. this gives him an off-ramp and time for his successor to um, you know, be chosen by the party and sort of get their ship in order. But the same goes for the, the Conservatives, right? One of the big problems that Andrew Scheer and Aaron O'Toole had was they had you know, basically a year and a half um, to assume the leadership, bring in all their own people, decide what needs to be done with the party apparatus, put that in place, and then start, you know, getting ready for an election while being in the House of Commons, while dealing with the pandemic, in the case of Mr. O'Toole. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that, you know, the Conservatives might be very publicly um, angry about this, but I think uh, a couple of bottles of wine were probably popped out of <laughs> last night. Alex Boudelier is our guest uh, from Global News, joining us on Toronto Today. Can I make the case that there was an element of concern um, about, can the Conservatives make the case that the, that the Liberals got stressed? They got stressed that Pierre Polyev was going to be the next leader, that Pierre Polyev would put massive pressure on them, and that the Liberals needed uh, sort of to in, envelop themselves with a little more insulation, a little more insurance over the next couple of years to prevent Parliament from potentially toppling. Well, I don't think it's it's related to any specific leadership contender, and I don't think it's specifically related to Pierre Polyev, who every liberal I know underestimates, and I think underestimates wrongly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's I think it's uh, more to do with the fact that you know this government is getting long in the tooth. First elected in in 2015, won two subsequent elections. You know, generally in you know sort of dynastic Canadian politics, when you're approaching that seven year, eight year sort of window, that's when people start getting a little bit fatigued with the existing uh, government. Um, so, you know, the next election was always going to be a tough, tough go. Um, so I don't think it's related to any specific candidate. You know, I don't think Pierre Polyev had Justin Trudeau sort of shaking in his boots. I think Justin Trudeau really underestimates the Conservatives generally. Um, so, so I don't think it was related to that. But, you know, again, I think the advantage is if the Prime Minister wants to retire over the next uh, year, you know, a couple, couple of years, leave undefeated and, and leave a legacy, he now has that, uh, you know, the luxury of doing that without having to worry about calling an election. Yeah, I, I yeah, we've seen it before, haven't we? I mean, I, I'm a college student, a university student in 93, and 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 Brian Mulroney sees the train coming, and Cretchen sees the train coming in, in 2004 when I know Paul Martin held a minority government, but it was tenuous at best, and and you could see the end in sight for um, for an era, uh, quote unquote. Yeah. And and I there just is not there wasn't even an, I don't see Christian Freeland as that obvious leader that Paul Martin potentially was. Um, so I agree. It gives the liberals more time to get themselves in order and at the same time, uh, you know, be be ready and, and be insulated because they know that their budget isn't a stress period. Votes in the House of Commons aren't a stress period. There's not going to be a confidence vote if this agreement holds. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, from, from Trudeau's perspective, you know, if he were to retire over the next couple of years, he goes out undefeated, you know, being the prime minister who brought in carbon pricing, which is a polarizing issue, I know, but, mm-hmm. you know, obviously well liked, uh, you know, among his circles, um, you know, the prime minister who finally got, you know, daycare deals done, again, a, a polarizing issue, but well liked within, you know, liberal policy circles. So I, I think that, you know, he sort of set the runway here to, you know, retire on top with a legacy if he so chooses. Now, that said, 
Justin Trudeau is also a very competitive person. And, you know, I think if Pierre Polyev is the next leader of the Conservative Party, that might be enough. You know, there might be just enough, you know, fight left in the tank for Trudeau to stick around. I mean, we'll have to wait and see what he says at nine. I know Robert Fife in The Globe is is suggesting that the Liberals and NDP were working on something even before the last election, Alex, to get something done. And and the Liberals just couldn't, how would I put it, they couldn't fulfill enough asks uh, for the NDP. The NDP was harshly critical about compensation for uh, Indigenous children, and, and the Liberals just couldn't, they couldn't get to that number. Um, and so... It's like I think we're giving the liberals a lot of credit here and they should, because like I said, it's it's blindsided a lot of conservative MPs. But Jugmeet Singh knew the kind of deal maker, kingmaker scenario that he was in, not just this election, but also after 2019. He knew he knew the influence that he could have on the liberals and he knew that he could pull the rug out from under them if need be. Yeah, but, I, you know, to that, I would say I don't think, um, you know, it, it really required Jugmeet Singh and the NDP to have this liberal government in particular governed from left of center. You know, uh, one of the sort of jokes that's said about uh, the Justin Trudeau liberals here in Ottawa is that, you know, it's the first NDP government that Canada's ever had. Um, so so I, I, I don't necessarily think that, you know, Mr. Singh had to push very hard to get Justin Trudeau and the people around him to govern on the left. Um, but again, I keep going back to, in my mind on this, um, what this means for the Conservatives. And I, I really counterintuitively think that they're the largest winners out of this because again they have that time to lay the groundwork for the next election which will be 10 years after after the liberals are first elected um and i think that you know they're really in um you know the catbird seat in terms of uh in terms of when that 2025 election comes alex boodle our guest last thing and i might be throwing at you because i don't know if you saw it uh, but the a new angus reed poll out suggesting that in ontario where the conservatives just have to make up ground they have to bust through that that red wall in the gta and up and down the 401 into london and kitchener that there's a preference to jean charret that he's got uh you know he's got an edge in in that particular battleground over pierre polyev we know where pierre is going to score we know we know where his points are but but the conservatives know and this is sort of why there's an entry point and a conversation anyway about charade there's certainly a conversation to be had about patrick brown that they can't necessarily pick the person that appeals to their their quote-unquote values the most they have to win ontario and uh, is this any kind of bad news for pierre polyev that that charade would poll better in ontario um I, I mean yes i mean obviously you know the person who is going to be able to deliver some of those suburban and exurban gta seats for the conservatives you know, that's an incredibly important consideration for, for the Conservative Party because that's really, you know, their easiest path to power. You know, that said, again, in the wake of last night's news, you know, the whoever the next Conservative leader is, is going to have a long time to sort of put together that all-important ground game, to put together that, um, you know, organization that's able to deliver some of those suburban seats. So, so I don't see a poll, you know, in the early days of the, the leadership election, you know, necessarily as predictive as, you know, of how the GTA is going to vote in 2025. Uh, you know, four years is a long time in politics. <laughs> it is. It, and uh, well, and we're seeing it come to four years here uh, provincially as well uh, with an election in, uh, my God, we're talking about 10 weeks uh, from now. Alex Boudelaire, awesome senior national politics reporter for Global News. Thanks for getting up early for us. I know uh, adrenaline started to flow last night. So thanks for making the time for us this morning. 
Anytime, Greg. Take care. Uh, that's really interesting stuff there. And and when we play that sing clip, I think that's significant as well. I would say this. I think he's right. I mentioned it at the top of the show. This is it for Justin Trudeau. He won't run in another election. Now, he's, got not, he's not going to announce that today at 9 o'clock. He's not going to announce that next week or two weeks. Why cap yourself in the knees? Like, why do that at any point in time over your run? You can leave it up for speculation. There will always be rumor. There will always be speculation about whether a sitting uh, prime minister is going to run again. It, we don't see it quite as often, obviously, in the United States. But there's, there's going to be that about Joe Biden, isn't there, uh, a couple years from now? I mean, the Republican primaries are going to start next fall, in the fall of 23, really to get going into primary season for 24. Trudeau doesn't have to say any of that. But I... That was my initial thought. The first thing I thought of last night, two, three things. One, what Alex said, it gives the conservatives time and they didn't have it. They didn't have it with Aaron O'Toole and not in the midst of a pandemic. Two, it means there's an element of threat from, I think, Pierre Polyev, if indeed we call him the leader in the clubhouse. And the third is this is it for Trudeau and they need to align ducks in a row. There's not an obvious choice. It is not Christian Freeland. I don't know how electable she is moving forward uh, for the Liberal Party. Really excited next to talk to conservative strategist Andrew Brander. I can't wait to get his reaction to last night and subsequently where all this goes today. And he joins us now on Toronto Today. Andrew, it's great to have you on. Thanks for making the time on short notice as well, because I, I saw this last night and, you know, political creatures like you, like me, the adrenaline starts to flow. It's hard to get back to sleep after huge news like that. That's right, Greg. I, you know what? Quite frankly, I was surprised uh, when I read last night, the Liberals and the NDP have a deal. And I woke up this morning and the sun still came up. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Now, um, were you shocked by it? Does this tell you anything? Were were there any suspicions, any any whispers of this seemed really airtight? And you know politics well. politics leaks there's always somebody who benefits from a leak and and there just was none of that over the last few months yeah so i i mean to be to be completely honest it it seemed like the uh the scuttlebutt sort of around uh around a possible deal had certainly died down um by you know mid-november um there there were some talks right after the election that they would formalize this in, in some kind of a, you know, a formal coalition, uh, that seemed to go away. But was I surprised at the end of the day? No, uh, this is obviously how our Westminster system works. Um, not saying that the system works all the time, um, but, but you're absolutely right, Greg. This is uh, a bit of unfamiliar territory for, uh, for most Canadians. These types of longstanding pacts or coalitions really have not become common practice in Canada. Um, but I think we're going to see more of them as we uh, as we move into uh, into the future, probably with uh, with some iteration of of more uh, options for Canadians on the ballot as we uh, as as Canadians seem to become uh, a little unhappy with the traditional choices uh, and, that they're being offered. Andrew Brander's joining us on Toronto today on 640 Toronto. Um, and I want to come back to all those federal implications in a minute, but you know this province really well. I, I was in elementary school and you probably weren't even born when uh, Frank Miller <laughs> won. The, he won the most seats, but David Peterson and Bob Ray joined forces. That's a true coalition government um, in 1985. And then Peterson won his majority in 87, Ray's in and 
190. But I think about this, and I think people, and, and I think it's on the mind of the Ford government here, that they may need a majority. Now, they may very well get it based on polling, but the Ford government needs a majority to avoid a similar quote-unquote marriage this June in our provincial uh, system. Absolutely. And, and, and the one thing I'd say is that it's important to differentiate between what's going on in Ottawa and, and that type of coalition or the last time this was sort of attempted, uh, you, you recall uh, Stephen Dion uh, with mm-hmm. the NDP in the bloc. Of course, none of those parties actually won the most amount of seats. So I think, I think when, we're, when we're talking about this, uh, you know, in, in terms of uh, what, what Canadians or Ontarians would be, would be willing to accept, I do think this type of deal comes across a little more uh, kosher, if you will. Um, uh, having said that, uh, you know, it's, it's a, an acknowledgement, too, uh, from the federal government uh, that, you know, it's time to stop treating uh, this parliament like they have like they have a majority. It remains to be seen whether that's actually going to be the case or whether, you know, this this type of deal is just going to empower them even more um, to uh, to continue to govern um, like they uh, like they have the complete confidence of Canadians. Andrew Branders joining us, uh, kind of to join us on 640 Toronto on Toronto today from Crestview Strategy. Got a few quick hitters for you. I think I'm sure of it now uh, that this is it for Justin Trudeau, that he won't run again after 2025. If this all holds out, what would you say to that? Yeah, so immediately my thought last night when I heard this was it almost certainly guarantees Trudeau will not be the leader in the next election. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I thought about this, I, I, I think what what it really does, this this type of deal, is it gives him a lot of time to decide if and uh, when he goes. Uh, he will be seen as a hero in his own caucus uh, for being able to secure this kind of deal. No one's got the nerve uh, to get the knives out now. Um, and he won't be pushed out by the party establishment to, to make way for another leader now that, now that people know how long that runway is. So he can ride it out for a bit, wait to see what happens with, uh, with the NDP, with the Conservatives. Um, and then, uh, you know, quite frankly, he's bought himself the right to uh, write his own ticket. Part, I want to get to the conservatives to finish up, but that part of this extension and, and you, you had a light bulb go off in my head with what you said, because I thought it was very uh, prescient, is the idea there isn't an obvious successor to him. I'm, there is not a Paul Martin sitting next to John Cretchen. I don't see this in Christopher Freeland, by the way, so let me get that out of the way. There's not a Brian Mulroney sitting there waiting to ascend up the ladder when the conservatives give him the leadership in 1983. So if it's not Christopher Freeland, if it's not Anita Nan, if it's not somebody, they've got the time they've got the stretch out now over two and a half years to decide who it is and maybe nobody we could even think of right now in our first seven or eight guesses yeah absolutely and and i think that's what uh you know a lot of this uh a lot of this came down to which is um trudeau really wants to see what what plays out and and who knows uh you know i've i've heard rumors from some of my liberal colleagues saying if you know if if you guys pick pierre as as your leader there is no way Justin Trudeau walks away from a fight uh, fight with Pierre. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. But, uh, but certainly it's creating the runway and the flexibility for the Liberals to, to make the right choice and for uh, the Prime Minister to, uh, to really install 
whoever he wants to personally pick uh, as leader. And they say that's the greatest legacy you can leave as as the leader of a party is to pick your successor. You're way, way more connected than me, but I'd, I'd heard uh, through channels the same thing, that maybe the only way Trudeau runs again is if it's directly against Pierre Polyev, that he wouldn't do it against John Charest or, or Patrick Brown or somebody else. It's Polyev, he, he doesn't want to go down, and, and uh, but he doesn't want to lose to Polyev, but maybe the party thinks he's the only one that could beat Pierre. Maybe they think that. Ego's a funny, funny thing. <laughs> and it, uh, it, it, plays, it plays its hardest in politics. That's this is why boxers keep coming out of retirement. Right? They can't get enough. They get called. They get, they get a bunch of yes men and they say, Sugar Ray Leonard, you can do it again. You're 42. Muhammad Ali, you can get in the ring against Larry Holmes. Everything will go right. And, and, then, it, and then it doesn't. Is this, is this at all bad news for Pierre or any of the other candidates? Or can you make the case they get more time for Canadians to decide on them? They get more time in the spotlight as leader, just doggedly pursuing the Liberals in the House of Commons over the next few years. Yeah, I think conservatives are all going to have a field day with this uh, from 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 all levels. So we've already seen, you know, scathing words from the interim leader, uh, Candace Bergen, going going after the government, really going to try to effectively brand them uh, as extreme conservatives using language like backdoor socialists. Um, the, the leadership candidates, for their part, um, are, are going to use this as well. Uh, they're going to use it to fundraise for their campaigns. It's all good news for them. Uh, the, the people who voted against this government really don't like this government, and that's going to motivate them that they're going to find volunteers, uh, breathe new life into these um, many campaigns that are emerging uh, for conservative leader. And oddly, uh, Aaron O'Toole, who, um, you know, the former leader, has been oddly silent, um, but I'd expect to see him run a victory lap on this at, at, at one point or, or another as well. But I would say mm. um, if I was advising, you know, the opposition or these leadership candidates, I'd avoid the I told you so. Um, I, I wouldn't make it about why conservatives were right or that, you know, we warned that this would happen. I'd focus on people, try to explain why it's wrong for Canadians. Um, and yeah. why a, a good deal for Justin Trudeau that gets him four more years of power will be costing Canadians for the rest of their life. That's the strategy, man. You, you nailed it. Um, that's why you do what you do. Vice President of Crestview Strategy, Andrew Brander. Let's talk again soon, Andrew. Thank you so much for the time today. Have a great day. You bet. Let's get to Anthony Fury from the Toronto Sun, who joins us right now. I'm going to ask you something. Will you stay through the very brief 830 news update and spend some time with me on the other side? Because I got to hit that on time. And you and I cannot get this done in five minutes and 45 seconds. We, Let's rock and roll. I, we got to talk about your gym workout and, and your lats and your delts and your maskless persona saying hi to people. So we'll get there in a little bit. Uh, but your reaction initially to uh, to this deal, um, I'm told some conservative MPs were just floored by it. Say what you will about politics and leaks. And um, this this thing was kept tight as a drum, according to most. The first thing that came to mind, Greg, was Michael Ignatieff explaining why he did not support Stefan Dion's 2008 Liberal NDP coalition against the Conservatives. Because while you can do it, you most certainly can. I mean, how you technically govern in Canada is the, the person who can convene the most number of MPs, the majority, however you cobble them together, goes to the Governor General says, hey, look, I got a majority. All right, let's rock and roll. But as Michael Ignatieff said, because it's not something that's typically done, because when voters go to the polls expecting 
the usual function of things, such as the party that gets the most number of seats, whether it's a minority, whether it's majority, they get to govern. That coalition was a violation of democratic norms. Even though it favored Ignatius and his party, would have made him a cabinet minister, he said, no, you can't go ahead with this. We're in a similar situation right now. Totally reasonable that you have a situation uh, where a governing party has a minority and they go to one of the smaller parties and say, hey, we'll support you for this horse trading. Let's get this confidence motion passed. And Jack Lane always explained that he was proud to have done that uh, back when he was NDP leader, but you did it one step at a time, one vote at a time. Singh basically saying, I got this guy's back come hell or high water until 2025. Wow. It's a violation of our democratic norms, Greg. But but, you know, people know when they go to the polls, they know that there's a potential for that to happen. You and I were a lot younger, a lot younger in 1985 when this happened provincially. And Frank Miller takes over for Bill Davis and doesn't. He has 52 seats. David Peterson has 48. Bob Ray has 25. Conservatives knew that was a possibility. They knew Peterson and Ray might collaborate uh, and and push Miller out. Um, So. I don't know. I, I, that's a that's a true coalition government to me. This is more a collaboration than a coalition. And I know you're using the word coalition. I know others will as well. But I don't know that that's as much of as of a, of a coalition because there's not going to be NDP members in cabinet, right? That like all of a sudden there isn't going to be Charlie Angus isn't going to be the finance uh, critic all of a sudden for for the Liberal Party. That's not going to happen. Yeah, well, that's part of what's going on here, though. We're not exactly sure this is uncharted waters. And I think that's the frustration uh, that a lot of people are dealing with. They're, they're responding with. I think we're seeing, you know, a series of kind of violations of democratic norms. Like we had Justin Trudeau interfering in the judiciary, uh, violating the Shawcross Doctrine. That's what happened with the SNC-Lavalin, Jody Wilson, Raybould thing. Uh, bringing in the Emergencies Act when you're just not really supposed to do this for this situation, for this threshold, whatever you thought of the convoy. And we've had a lot of people, uh, constitutional experts, saying, no, this violates some norms. This is a similar thing here. Can you technically do it? Can Trudeau do it you know, without punishment? Sure he can, but he's really uh, revising the way things have always operated in Canada. Does he get credit for pushing those boundaries? Does he get credit as a pa- I, I compared him to Logan Roy in succession, who, as he put it at the end of last season, just flipping wins. And he's bought himself. The idea was we'd go to the polls next spring. The idea was we'd go to the polls fall of 2023. Like, I don't know how I'm feeling if I'm conservative party candidates. They were going to have a big summer, push their chests out, get out, have the barbecue circuit going elect a leader and then be really unified and then put the heat on. And now they're, they're going to be sort of in quicksand for the, for two, maybe two and a half years after they elect this leader. Sure. And that's their problem. It's not up to Trudeau to, to design things to benefit uh, conservative previous plans. But I, I think your remark was pretty telling. You said we were all thinking that we would have an election at this or that time, because of course we know traditionally a minority government really only lasts about two, two and a half years in Canada. And again, that's the norm. And they're subverting this norm. To go back to the Jack Layton example, I'm really surprised. Well, I'm surprised that Jagmeet Singh is not honoring uh, the Jack Layton example, because back then Jack Layton would have more leverage because he'd kind of say he'd whisper uh, to whatever the governing party was. And, and previous NDP leaders had done this as well. OK, we're, we're going to support you. We're kind of 
uh, like-minded on certain things, or, or maybe not when, when it came to Stephen Harper. And he said, but I need this, I need that. And you never knew, because Jack always held it back, and Jack could pull that support any time. I guarantee you at the press conference today, Jack Meeting's going to say, well, you know, I, I can rescind this deal any moment I want. It's like, well, well no, you actually can't, because you've done a press conference basically saying you're backing Trudeau until 2025. So uh, Jagmeet Singh does not have the same leverage that Jack Layton previously had. He's, he's making it pretty clear that he's given up all of his wild cards. This tells you an awful lot too, doesn't it, about what people said to me and they probably said to you, why is Singh going along with the Emergency Measures Act? Why is he not more vocal about right. it? Why is he supporting it, quote unquote, reluctantly? <laughs> Cynical or not, we've got our answer now. Yeah, and I don't know if it's cynical. I mean, my question for Jagmeet Singh, he's, he's a nice guy. He's a well-liked guy. I'm unclear why he's party leader. I'm unclear what he wants to do as a politician. It's very interesting. I mean, he, he doesn't seem mm. particularly interested in playing a leading role in the thrust and parry of the day of, of Canadian politics. I mean, it does seem like a bit of uh, an abdication here. I got a minute here and then we'll we'll have a few more on the other side because we got to talk COVID masks uh, yesterday and everything. But it, this signifies to me the end of Justin Trudeau. He does not run again. He'll never announce that that's not coming today or next week, but he'll have been an MP 15 years. He'll have been prime minister 10 years. I think he walks after 2025. Does this make this more decisive for you that that's the case? Maybe, maybe not. As I said, he's done things differently uh, than we've typically expect in Canadian politics. So so your analysis makes sense, Greg, but I, I wouldn't write things off. I wouldn't write off Justin Trudeau sticking around for much longer. I wrote columns uh, back mm. in previous elections saying, you know, like with Pierre Elliott Trudeau, uh, back in 1972, he went to bed thinking he had lost. No, his legacy was only just beginning, and he stayed as a, a prime minister for over a decade after that. Yeah. He's older than he looks, though. He's 50, Anthony. I can't imagine getting, uh, you know, uh, getting close to. I don't care if, if there's a little gray in that beard uh, from time to time outside the cottage. <laughs> Let's introduce Winston C., a freelance journalist. It's great to have you. You come highly recommended, highly reviewed. You've got like a 97 percent approval rate on Rotten Tomatoes. It's great to have you on. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. I'm glad I have such a great review. Absolutely. And oh, uh, well reviewed as well. Not just for her best selling book, Can You Hear Me Now? But for much, much more than that. Uh, she's a great guest and we're glad she's making time for us. Selena uh, Cesar, Siobhan, it's great to have you. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me. No Rotten Tomatoes for me? Mm, no, but I will say this. Um, when when I look up your book, there is another Can You Hear Me Now? But yours outsold it. This The other one's about the steps to thriving relationships. So I should probably buy that one, even though I am a happily married human being. But I should buy that because I could use... <laughs> I could use improving some relationships in my life, uh, but your your can you hear me now? How I find found my voice and learned to live with passion and purpose is amazing, also. And I know so many people that have read it. And congrats! Will you ever write another book? I probably after this discussion, I might write another. Book. <laughs> that'll be a pamphlet, actually. That'll be yeah. a uh, that's a flyer you can hand out around <laughs> around the neighborhood. I I don't think I have a book in me. Maybe a flyer or uh, or yeah, some kind of pamphlet with photos, animated photos. Uh, no less. Well, uh, Selena, let's start here with you. Um, wow. Uh, breaking news last night with a deal between uh, the Liberal Party, where you sat, uh, and the NDP to eliminate the pot prospect of an election. And I guess that makes some people happy. But um, a lot of people are wondering who this benefits, who's the angriest about it. Is this good for the NDP? Is this good for even the conservatives to give them more time to align their ducks choosing a leader this summer? How do you view this? So 
is this really breaking news? Like, I think, <laughs> I think uh, you know, the, the, the liberals uh, really got a message sent to them by Canadians loud and clear in the last, um, I mean, I'm using air quotes, election um, that really said, no, we want you to work together. We've put you in office as a minority to work together. Mm-hmm. You've called an election that's cost us millions of dollars, and we're telling you again, work together. So we have something that's really breaking news, but really not really breaking news because I think Canadians expect it at this point. Um, who does it favor? Uh, well, I hope that the Conservatives get their, their ducks in order. Uh, they, they may have the opportunity to do that, although it's yet to be seen. But I would hope that actually Canadians are the ones that benefit the most from this. I hope that, you know, the Liberals are not using this as another ploy to, to say we're going to work together to have pharmacare, to have dental care, to, to really work for the people that are most vulnerable in our community, seniors, uh, children, people who are living, you know, close to or below the poverty line, and get some of these programs actually in place. Will that happen in the next three years? I'm not sure. I think the NDP might have gotten duped. And I, I know you advocated for a lot of these programs uh, in your own, not just in your own writing, but in interviews before and while you for were sure. a member of parliament. Let me give you one more quick one. And then I really want Winston to dig in here is 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 when we wondered whether, gee, is, is Jagmeet Singh going along with this Emergency Measures Act? Why isn't he more upset about this? We've now got a much better answer, don't we? And that's politics. Yeah. That's understandable. But they've been working on this almost since the end of the election all the way through Christmas, all the way through the winter, and obviously all the way through the Ottawa protests. They were working on a, on a basically a, a social contract. They, well, that's exactly what was... That's, we see the evidence of that now, and uh, it, it does, certainly does explain a lot. I'm just hoping that, uh, that the NDP juggling team actually knows, that has some levers that he can mm. press to ensure that these programs go through. Again, this is not about an NDP liberal deal. This is about making sure that Canadians, especially the most vulnerable, get what they need to survive through what has been the worst couple of years that I think for a lot of people have had. So let's just get the work done at this point. Winston, what's your thought on reacting to the idea that there's an agreement and then obviously, you know, no agreement comes together overnight, but this has been in the process for, for weeks and months. Is there is there a winner in the agreement? How did you react to it? Well, as Selena said, I'm really hoping the Canadians are the winners on this. I think this is really interesting because this is so new. Um, as, as mentioned, the NDPs, uh, they, they really get... Some of the items that they've been lobbying for for quite a while, the pharmacare, the dental care, and we also know that Canadians are kind of tired of going to the poll. The last election, mm-hmm. we know many Canadians just weren't really sure why they were going to the polls when they had just gone two years ago. So could this mean that we're seeing a little bit more um, collaboration happening? Um, as we've seen, as, as, as also mentioned, uh, the Emergencies Act, the NDPs and the Liberals did work together on that. Um, but, of course, the Conservatives are also saying this is really a power grab. So how this unfolds in the next little bit will be really interesting to see as this is breaking right now. As this starts to develop a little bit more, we'll see how uh, this is going to work and whether Canadians really are in the best interest of this. And, Winston, you pointed out we've got a municipal election uh, in the GT and all over Ontario in the fall. We've got a June provincial election that... I, you know, I think people have been waiting for, itching for, maybe since the start of the pandemic. So you're right. The idea that we'd go again federally next spring or summer, uh, exhausting. I mean, people got to get, we're all trying to get our lives back after two years. 
And that's exactly it. As we're starting to ease back into the world, we just need a little bit of direction. And so whether this, uh, wh- whether this deal could bring a little bit of normalcy, just so people know what direction we're moving in, um, and then we can focus on things like the municipal and provincial elections, maybe that will um, help that along. Hey, Selena, you can bring us really inside stuff here. Will there be backbenchers, liberal MP backbenchers, some of whom spoke out uh, during the protest, some of whom don't like the tone of this government, which has been well documented? Um, Again, a lot of people are very critical of the small fringe minority quote. If anything, that poured gasoline on the next four weeks, not water. Um, Will there be backbenchers that look at this and and, and don't want to go along, but they'll go along to get along? How do you view it? There will be some that go along to get along for sure, but I see. I think what we've seen with uh, Joelle Lightbound and others, and even the rumblings after the caucus meeting, I believe there was a caucus meeting last night, that there is some um, ambiguity and unsuredness, or whatever word I'm looking for mm-hmm. this morning. I haven't had my coffee yet. Um, <laughs> uh, there is some unsuredness about what is going forward, what, what this will actually look like, and how it is going to benefit Canadians. I think at the end of the day, we want that tone, that positivity, that understanding that we are going in a positive direction, but also that the direction we're going in is going to help people. People are struggling. And if that is not the mandate of whatever collaboration or agreement has come to, I think and I would hope that uh, MPs, backbenchers challenge that and ensure that their constituents are at the forefront of every decision that is being made. That's Selena Cesar Siobhan joining us, former Liberal MP, author of Can You Hear Me Now? Winston C. is with us as well on Chatterbox. A lot of text reaction and a lot of people enjoying our conversation this morning. Winston, let's go here. This is great because we got some political intrigue and it gets us stop stop talking about masks in schools, even for 24 hours. What a relief. Um, yesterday was deemed maskless Monday by some teachers wearing them, kids wearing them. I had one kid uh, go without uh, in elementary school in grade eight. I had a grade 10 wear his most of the day. That's cool. I wanted them to understand. I wanted them to be independent, understand all that they've sacrificed. But do these arguments all seem political in nature or, or are they about data and our, our collective level exhaustion two years? And I hear people saying, well, this is so politicized by the Ford government. I'm like, yeah, but the criticism on the other side is quite political about it as well. I, I don't know how we wouldn't make that that co- that correlation. The million dollar question. I felt like <laughs> yesterday uh, when you're walking out of the house, you're, you're walking into the local pharmacy or the grocery and you're just kind of peeking in. Are people wearing masks? Are people not wearing masks? And you can't help but to wonder how much of it is politics versus data. One thing that I was looking at really closely um, is the technology. And, um, you know, it was pretty upfront at the beginning of the pandemic. Citizens had access to data, but now it's become quite muddy. And many governments have stopped reporting daily numbers because of the changes in the way people access PCR tests. And so many parents are left with citizen reliance of reporting. Schools have these crowdsourced maps. And so it's become really muddy. Um, and when you look stateside, the fatigue is also pierced for a long time. Um, so the changes seem quite in line mm. with that. But then on the Canadian side, the exhaustion is very real. So it's going to take time for people to acclimatize in and out of school. And people seem to be reaching for their own data to make their own decisions. But of course, as you mentioned, the exhaustion really is starting to wear in. 
So um, yeah, I think the coming days and months are going to be really interesting, especially as we don't have official guidance anymore. Selena, how do you view it? Is is it, it, I understand it, and uh, and and politics is such a a beast. Of course, um, Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca are going to say it's too soon. But we've got fifty states without mask mandates. We got a lot of Western European countries walking forward and 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 trying to get to a better place. And and I think it's one thing to say, well, let's take them off here and there. But it's another thing. I, I often think about this with little kids. It's almost like the younger the person, the longer they have to have them on, the more they may not have a clue why that's happening. And and they've been dealing with this since they've been three or four years old. That's the struggle for a lot of people when when it, when it hits them right in the chest like that challenge with what you just said there is that, you know, because there has been such ambiguity and because the, the messages have been, well, you know, we've been listening to the science table. We haven't been listening. I don't think they're listening. I don't know what's happening. Mm-hmm. And there's this back and forth. Well, how is that supposed to play out? We don't, I don't think anybody really knows what to do, let alone the, the three-year-old. So I yesterday had a child going to school. He wore his mask all day mm-hmm. and he came back and reported that three kids in the other, in the other, class were not wearing a mask and you know i think everybody is still watching out but i I think we really need to be careful about uh to winston's point that you know we're not reporting certain numbers we're not sort of uh keeping these daily tasks Mm -hmm. you know tallies together and i'm on the 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 vaccine task force um especially related to the black community in the city of toronto and the pandemic is not over. <laughs> the numbers still don't look great. I mean, they're starting to get better, but they're they're not optimal. And so I just think we should approach this with some kind of cautious optimism and really continue to follow the numbers, follow what is happening, follow the trends, and make decisions that are in the best interest, especially of those around us that are, again, I'm going to use this word again, most vulnerable, people with, who are immunocompromised, people who are... You know, we've seen a lot of deaths in our in our elderly population. Let's be very careful about how we move forward so that we are considering people who need it the most. And Celine, I'm glad you brought that up. And, and you'd be a great person to ask about this. I, I worry. I had this discussion with Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star last week. Like we can I, I feel like we're so politicized talking about kids and masks and this dose and that dose, but we've we've got a lot of older residents that haven't got a third vaccine shot yet. In Ontario, 60 to 69, yeah. almost one in four people in that age demo haven't had their third shot. 50 to 59, it's 38.5%. Now, maybe we can make the case that they're less vulnerable than people over 80. Of course we can, but that's still a really huge number. And I just find our campaign, our messaging has just just vanished federally and provincially to let people know, especially vulnerable people. Like we can't, we're worried about boosting 18 year olds. We got to boost 58 and 68 year olds. We have to. Yeah, exactly. And, and this is the challenge with the, the tone and the change in the, in the messaging in particular, you know, and I, I don't, you know, when, when Doug Ford took off the mask in the press conference and said, you know, I really don't need these. I like, <laughs> Come on, man. Like there are people that need that to like, that, that are, are not going to survive, that they, they feel unsafe, that they're, they're going to be challenged by their health. And I, I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to quote David Burt, Dr. David Burt, who's on the, the task force. It says, even though the numbers in hospitals due to the current wave are falling in Canada, Note that currently they are at similar levels at the at those at the peak of the pandemic. The pandemic is not over, and we need to con- to continue to watch how um, Canada is adversely affected mm. by this uh, this 
this pandemic. We, we can't just let go of the reins and see what happens. There is a social responsibility to protect those that need it the most. Winston C., Selena Cesar Siobhan's great to have both of you on, uh, and I hope we can do this again. I've really enjoyed this. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. So, Mary Apol, just to update you, as Dave did uh, about a half hour ago, Mary Apol will not be surrendered by Ukraine right now. Long-form interview. I watched a good chunk of it yesterday afternoon with Vladimir Klitschko and Vitaly Klitschko. Now, Vitaly's the mayor. This is really tricky because so many people who loved boxing think that the two are twins. They aren't. Um, Vladimir Klitschko is not the mayor of uh, of Kiev, but v- v- Vitaly is, but Vladimir is not. Vladimir made this point uh, about how entrenched Ukrainians are, and he gave a lot of credit to something that we haven't talked about very much, and that's female fighters, female defenders, female resistors in Ukraine. This is um, over 20 days now since the beginning of the war, and we learn every day. We were not prepared. All the people from the territorial defense, um, they're volunteers pretty much, or former military men and women, not to forget. I'm proud of our women that stand in arms with the men and defending their homes, their families, their children. And the spirit is as strong as it could be because it's just something we have one goal, one target. We want to live in a peaceful country, and everyone who is trying to attack us, which is already done by the Russian army, and um, the war that had been started by President Putin, uh, reckless war. It's really remarkable to watch the Klitschko's, and they've done this in Ukraine uh, really since they both retired. At one point, they would have been easily two of the most, I don't know, 15, 20 recognizable athletes on the planet, um, easily on the planet, because everybody on the planet watches boxing. Everybody watches soccer, obviously. The NFL is getting there, but they don't all watch the NBA, and they sure don't watch the NHL, Major League Baseball. They would have been so recognizable, and there they are. Um, I, I don't think we can quite relate to exactly what they've done. And the point can be made here as well uh, as we get to our next guest. This attack, like the attack on a shopping center, nothing's a coincidence about that. This is this is now the targeting of civilians. These aren't accidental bombings. These aren't we want to shake you and, and rattle you a little bit. The idea is put the civilians in bad conditions. OK, make them run, make them uh, suffer. To be honest, kill them, make them put pressure on their leaders, the ones that are alive. And what Ukraine and the Klitschko's want to do is put the pressure back on Vladimir Putin instead. There's been a lot of economic impact so far on Russia that's been documented in the last day and a half. But the questions will be, is it enough? Very pleased to be joined by Mike Weikert. He's the director for preparedness and field readiness at World Vision International. And we've talked about World Vision and the great work they've done uh, for the last few weeks here. And he's joining us uh, live from Bucharest, Romania. Mike, thank you very much for making the time. Uh, You're a long way from home. We appreciate you being over there. How have conditions been for you uh, in the last few days? Uh, Conditions here in Bucharest, where the refugees are coming, you know, for me, is quite fine. I mean, I'm I'm able to 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 get good accommodation. Obviously, for the refugees, it's more of a challenge. But the the Romanians have done a great job of welcoming the refugees here. Um, some end up in private residences. Some end up in shelters of various types. But there there definitely is a a structure and a process to help people 
come to the come into the country. Many of them are transiting out of the country, and so there's support there as well. Um, there's obviously challenges. There's obviously people who fall through the cracks, but in general, the, the, it's been a, a good welcome for the Ukrainians who've come. Uh, this is what I've heard consistently from people is that, that they're they're appreciative of what they've received here. Bucharest, for our listeners, almost a city of two million people. Um, Mike, are most coming via the land border, or are there flights of refugees from Ukraine landing as well? No, it's, it's land border. People are crossing. For the most part, they're crossing on foot. When they, Sometimes they get a ride to the border and then they walk across, I think, but at least probably half of them are doing that. Some people are driving less and less so as mm-hmm. you... Uh, some people were able to get out earlier. The people who are coming out now are the ones who probably have less means or it's more dangerous, and so they're traveling uh, to the border and, and walking across. Many of them then get uh, transit into the bigger cities by bus or train or things like that. The stories are are just so harrowing. And when you even watch my coverage here in the first, you know, 10 days, obviously, I mean, we're going back four, four and a half weeks now since uh, this invasion happened. Uh, and, and to see footage of people explain that they walked with family, with pets, even um, 21, 22 hours um, to get to, you know, to get to Poland, to get to Romania, just to get out of Ukraine. The fortitude, um, the I mean, I guess we could say, well, we'd all do it if our lives were on the line. But my God, the resourcefulness and the determination of of people to leave and, and look out for their loved ones. It's incredible. Yeah, I've talked to a number of people and the stories you hear, you know, they're 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 quite, uh, quite uh, I don't know, remarkable in many ways. Right. I mean, just people who have had to leave on very short notice, you know, say goodbye often to the, the, the males of the family who are you know, fighting age. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as you say, take your pets, take your young children. Most people are crossing with some children. Uh, and it's just, it's a very difficult journey for most people. And, uh, yeah, they, they're, they're remarkable. You can imagine how much, uh, let's say psychological trauma they've been through. And, and we've heard that a lot that people really are suffering. They're trying to process what happened. Sometimes they're getting images from back home of, you know, lost loved ones or homes and, and businesses being destroyed, things like that. So the, it doesn't just, the trauma doesn't stop when they leave. You know, they, they, they continue to get news from home. I think you may, Mike Weikert's our guest, by the way, uh, from World Vision International in Toronto today. I think you make a really interesting point that I, I think our audience would be interested in you expanding on. And that's, this isn't, for many of them, they know it's goodbye forever. They know this isn't temporary. They know there won't be much to go back to, don't they? I, I think so. I, 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 you know, it's, it's one of those things that's still very early. So I, I think people know that what they've had has been destroyed or, or you know, ties been cut. But I, I don't know if it's really sunk in. I don't know how it would sink in if it was my situation. You know, can you could you you, you could know it at one level. Can you know it at a deeper level? I'm not sure. But uh, it, it's also important to note a lot of people are staying in Ukraine. You know, they really don't want to mm-hmm. leave either because they don't want to get too far away from family, or or they don't have the means to go further as well. So. Probably, you know, if it's somewhere around 20 percent of the people in Ukraine are on the move in one form or another, either in other countries or in Ukraine. And so it's 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 really significant how many people it's affecting. I mean, you've got anecdotal, um, you know, evidence of of it, but I'm sure you've studied it as well. The, the entire concept of, of the human condition, as you point out there, there'd be people. I watch these couples in their 70s and they live in apartment buildings and they say, I'm safe here. Our pets are here. My home's here. Why would I pack everything I own into a small car? And 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 knowing that it once we hit the road, there's no going back and there's Russian soldiers everywhere and there's tanks everywhere and there's planes everywhere dropping missiles. They do feel safer where they are sometimes. It's it's a convincing effort to get people to leave and, and go to maybe a safer place. Yeah, it's and I think it's different people make different decisions. We see this mm-hmm. in every disaster situation. You know, some people try to ride out hurricanes as well the same way they feel safer at home. 
Uh, this one would be even harder because, as you say, it might mean not coming back. Uh, so I, I, I can't imagine the decisions that people have to make and the calculations they make. And, and, and some, of course, don't have the ability to move easily because they're maybe maybe just if they have physical disabilities or, or some other reason they're un, in, unable to travel, it, it, those decisions must also be incredibly hard to, to have to make. I know World Vision especially concerned about human trafficking. And I know it, it, it may not be the most prominent issue we think of when we're watching the coverage or when we're having conversations like this. But once you get a refugee flow, um, once you get people... People displaced, not just from their homes, but their country. Uh, these numbers always, always spike. Um, what are what are warning signs of this? Why are displaced kids so much more vulnerable? Uh, I mean, it's obvious their family, they're separated from their families. But what are organizations like World Vision and others doing um, to, to, to put measures in place to keep people safer, kids safer? Yeah. yeah, I mean, you've identified it correctly. It's, it's you know, when people are on the move, when they're crossing borders, all these, you know, they're, they're, they've had to move in a hurry, uh, they're, they're, there's greater risk, and always this comes up, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and if you try to mitigate it, what we often do is people need to be made aware of the risks, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's about awareness so they can do some of their own kind of risk management and protect themselves, not, not sort of, you know, maybe just take the first offer of support that happens, but really to assess whether there's a, a risk to them there. Um, Romania does have, you know, protection systems in place for uh, vulnerable people, particularly women and children. And so, you know, when we can refer people who are at risk to those systems and they can get support that way, that's another way. Because, you know, we in, in, a, in a context like Romania, there's a lot that's being done. There's a lot of very talented people who are, are have their eyes open and really working uh, for people who are um, vulnerable for of exploitation and abuse. And so we, we try to make sure that they, they, they get connected up with, with uh, those who, who need it. Mike Weikert's our guest from World Vision International. Last thing for you, and on that front, are you seeing kids um, come just with, I won't say random uh, uh, adults, but you must be seeing kids that have already been separated from parents or have lost parents and they're either coming with strangers or family friends or distant relatives and they they don't have a home they don't have an infrastructure they are literally starting from scratch now yeah i i personally have not seen really that you know we've heard stories of it and thankfully most of the, of the people i've interacted with who are you know have come from ukraine have traveled in families or if they're children without parents they've come accompanied by you know caregivers of various types so thankfully up until now there's been a that, you know, it has been very rare cases that exist, but we all, I think we've heard them if we followed the news that there are those cases. And, and we, we know that there's always people who will have to make these choices and move quickly. And sometimes they're separated. And uh, I think it's, it's, that's, again, there's a lot of people in Romania, I think at the other borders waiting to help people. And so when you get those, those people who are trained, like my, my colleagues and, and, and those from other organizations who, who are trained to, to recognize these risks, we, we can intervene. We can, as I said, increase understanding and awareness and also refer people to where they can get more help. Unbelievable. Mike, thanks so much for the time. I greatly appreciate you sharing uh, your story. And of course, for you and World Vision over there doing what you're doing. It's good to be with you, Greg. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to Toronto Today. Find us where you get your podcast, which is probably right here. Share it with a friend and feel free to subscribe. We'll come right to your phone or your laptop or your iPad every single day, bringing you what we do. Thank you again for listening. We'll have a live show tomorrow. A lot of reaction, a lot more reaction to the fallout from this big federal deal uh, all on the live show tomorrow. You can hear us on the Radio Player Canada app or go to 640toronto.com.